Well, good evening to you all and welcome to this special Ralph Miliband lecture on the past, present and future of Libya presented by Saif al-Islam al-Qaddafi. And let me say right from the beginning what a pleasure it is for me to have him here. First of all, I knew him quite well whilst he was a student here for a number of years. And as I'll come on to reflect in a moment, we argued about a lot of things. But I've also, during this time, come to know him very well. And I must say that uh, I've come to like him a great deal. So it is a great pleasure for me to welcome him here, both in a personal capacity and then secondly as a representative of the Miliband program, and thirdly as an academic of the London School of Economics, of course. Born in 1972, Saif is currently chairman of the Gaddafi International Foundation for Charity and Development, based in Tripoli. Founded in 2003, the Gaddafi Foundation devotes itself to development and humanitarian work, especially in the social, economic, cultural, and most importantly, in the human rights field. Saif received his PhD from the LSE in 2009. The topic of this thesis was, perhaps initially, if one took a certain outside view, perhaps, surprising. But it was on the role of civil society in the democratization of governance, in this case, global governance institutions. He also received a master's degree in political philosophy from the LSE in 2003, and before that, a business degree from a university uh, also a master's degree in, in Vienna in 2000. He graduated with a BSc in engineering from Tripoli's Al-Fatah University in 1994. That's four degrees, safe, one, one more than me. You are, you are collecting me. <laughs> SAFE is committed to resolving contentious international and domestic issues through dialogue, debate, and peaceful negotiations. Among his successful interventions was the release in the late summer of 2000 of Western tourists who were taken hostage in a Malaysian diving resort by a radical Islamic organization based in the South Philippines. With his own country, Saif has spearheaded efforts to open discussion with Islamic militants about the nature and form of their struggle in order to find ways of bringing them back into the political process. As a result of this dialogue, the leaders of the Libyan Islamic fighting group issued a manifesto renouncing violence and disavowing links to al-Qaeda, while the Libyan authorities subsequently released more than 200 prisoners to their families. If you haven't read this document, it is worth reading because it is a very unusual publication based on dialogue between a number of committed people seeking to find a way through issues that are potentially the cause of violence to find a discursive, negotiated way forward. Safe recently received the, cha uh, the award, the Champion of Cultural Inclusion Award from the Islamic Friendship Association of Australia. The awards committee noted his success was based on the use of the language of soft power, that is, the language of dialogue. I've known him for many years. We've had a private dialogue on a huge range of issues, from Israel-Palestine to English idealism. We've agreed on some of these, and we've disagreed on a great many. But throughout this time, I've come to know Saif as someone who looks to democracy, civil society, and deep liberal values for the core of his inspiration. I look forward to hearing how he will apply these in his discussion of Libya um, this evening. So please join with me in giving him a very warm welcome.
Ladies and gentlemen, thank you. It is an honor to address you today. It is good to be back at the LSE, which has played such a critical role in my intellectual development. I came to the LSE in 2002 as my country was just emerging from isolation, just a year after I began my studies. In December 2003, Libya made a decision to dismantle its program to develop nuclear and chemical weapons. This was a turning point in diplomatic ties with the West. Since then, Libya has seen the lifting of, of UN sanctions in 2004, settlement in 2008 of claims relating to the 1988 bombing of the US airliner over, over Lockerbie, together with the settlement of the Libyan claims involving dozens of victims in the 1986 US bombing of Libya. In 2007, we resolved the tragic incident involving five Bulgarian medics and one Palestinian doctor held in Libya for allegedly infecting children with AIDS virus. <coughs> for young Libyans particularly, this shift has seemed like a dream come true, a dramatic change, and a very welcome one. In this new phase, we began to look to find our own way to develop our economy and reform our political system. And furthermore, to adapt to, adapt to a globalized interdependent world. In the next 30 minutes or so, I would like to introduce my vision of participatory democracy in Libya based on a new version of social liberalism. First, I would outline the major challenges we face in our reform process in Libya as we move from a managed society to a free society and from an artificial economy to a real economy. I will then turn to the specific policies and institutions I advocate for the Libya of tomorrow. No doubt there will be some who will react with skepticism that I am presenting a version of participatory democracy in a region of the world that has been resistant to democracy. At least the dominant model of the Western party-based representative democracy. Scholars have sought to find explanations for the general absence of Arab democracies as defined by the criteria of such, such organizations as Freedom House or the Polity Project. They often point to Arab culture or Islam or levels of economic development. I am certain that the problem is not Islam, which has a long history of tolerance, of consultation with the people, and of economic and scientific development. Islam is not incompatible with democracy and does not discourage the emergence of attitudes favorable to democracy. One major problem 
is the legacy of colonialism and the fact that many Arab states have relatively new boundaries formed when European established colonies after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. Most Arab states have no traditional established communities or national identity, which provides an important basis for successful democracies. We have largely had a pan-Arab identity. In Libya, we have had no tradition of civic culture of participation in public affairs or established political culture based on rights and obligations and commitment to the public good. Instead, we have a historical legacy of distrust of a central administration run by foreign colonial powers. The territory of modern Libya was under Turkish rule from the 16th century to the outbreak of the World War I. In 1922, when the Italian fascist party assumed power in Rome, there was a brutal policy of subjugation of Libyans by force. With independence in 1952, Libya was ruled by a king whose legitimacy rested on his position as a head of a major Sufi religious order and based on support of major tribal groups. The king banned political parties, which is still in effect until now. After that, revolutionary thoughts and indoctrination prevailed for 50, 40 years. All these facts make it harder to create a modern democracy. Geopolitics is also an important factor in making it difficult for democracy to thrive in the region. Inter-conflict, interstate conflict in the Middle East, the Arab-Israeli conflict, service to reinforce authoritarian political and security structure. Arab states spend three times more on security, more on security than NATO countries as a percentage of GDP. But there is another problem of economic structure that has a profound effect, the so-called oil curse. In an oil-rich country, the state has cash from the inherited prosperity of natural resources and does not need to reach any form of social contract with its people about taxation in return for a voice in governance of the state. Nor does it need a vibrant market sector to create prosperity. 11 of the 16 Arab states are so-called rentier states that suffer from the problem of the oil curse. Of the 23 states in the world that receive the majority of their export earnings from oil and gas, not one is considered a democracy by Freedom House measures. Oil-rich states have a heavily centralized bureaucracy because it is the recipient and distributor of the oil wealth. Citizens have an incentive to remain passive and seek a share 
a share of the pie through the capability to support, bribe, and stay close, close to those who distribute state wealth. Civil society is weak and co-opted by the state. There is little entrepreneurship since most people in business service the state or its oil sector or otherwise feed of government contracts. The best and brightest young talent typically work as representatives of foreign oil companies. So, historical legacies, culture and oil curse present daunting challenges. Yet, we must find a way forward to achieve a truly democratic society. I believe democracy should maximize political participation. Democracy should ideally be what is literally means, ruled by the people. It may be difficult to build democracy in our part of the world, but there are also very serious problems with democracy in Western countries too. Modern representative democracies in the West have fallen far short of the ideal of participation and rule by the people. In the US, with its winner-take-all plurality voting system, a member of the House of Representatives is often elected with the vote of just one in five eligible voters. Even in years that set records for voters, voter participation for a U.S. presidential election, 1964 and 2008, the turnout just breaks the 60% mark of eligible voters. This means that 40% of eligible voters did not partic participate at all. And usually about half of those who do participate support the losing candidate. Meaning that only about 25 to 30% of the, of the eligible electorate gets a representative for whom they actually voted. The result is a move away from rule by the people and toward rule by political factions and special interests. The PU Research Center report published last month found that over 75% of Americans agree with each of the following statements. Elected officials in Washington care only about their careers. They are influenced by special interests. They are unwilling to compromise. They spend too much money and they are out of touch with the people. Other representative democracies with different electoral, electoral systems also have serious problems. A proportional representation system does give citizens a more direct impact on political power because it increases the number of effective votes and the number of winners. But multi-party voting based on percentage of the vote ha has its own problems. Such, such as unstable coalition uh, and the absence of a majority-based government. 
Over the past three decades, Libya has conducted a grand-scale social experiment to try to create an alternative to the dominant model of party-based representative democracy, a democracy based on the principle of direct participation of the spirit of ancient Athens. So, in theory, Libya is the most democratic state in the world. <laughs> because, because in, in theory, in theory, in theory, because we have a national system of direct forms of popular political participation, the town meeting style gathering called Basic People's Conferences. Libya has legally vested individual citizens with decision-making power through several hundred of these basic people's conferences. The ideal has been to have citizens to learn about their policy issues, engage face-to-face, -face, and to decide by casting their vote without intermediaries or representatives, and hence without political parties which were regarded by thinkers from Jean-Jacques Rousseau to George Washington to be divisive and disruptive of the process of citizen deliberation. Each local unit is su supposed to administer its own affairs and select delegates to the regional level conferences and to the national level general people's congress. This is a model of direct democracy that gives ultimate authority to the people and enables them to participate directly in the creation of the laws that govern them. In practice, however, the reality has fallen far short of the ideal. Participations in the BPCs has been low and often superficial. This can largely be explained by different challenges I noted at the outset. We have had to try to build a civic culture of participation in a post-colonial state with no such tradition in a region plagued by <coughs> geopolitical conflict and oil curse. The implementation of our direct democratic system has faced many serious problems. First, we did not create formal structures for direct democracy. Sorry, we did create formal structures for direct democracy, but in actual implementation, we have had a managed society with interference by different institutions and the leadership. Second, no independent media. Third, the absence of civil society. Fourth, a non-inclusive approach with regard to Libyans with different political beliefs or opponents. There were also other serious misguided efforts in Libya to implement ideals of popular democracy and social justice. In the 1980s, the noble aspiration to empower workers, to make them partners, not wage earners, resulted in the abolition of private property which was, in effect, the same as Soviet state socialism. 
The Green Book, which is our political and economic doctrine, did not support a monopoly on ownership of the means of production by any group, class, or the state itself. But the state did become the monopoly owner of economic enterprises. The result was artificial economy with shortages, distorted prices, and low quality. And the main victim was the whole nation. The question I pose is how can we be noble and efficient at the same time? I spent long hours thinking about the lessons we had learned here in our uh, learn, we have we, we had uh, learned in our Libyan experiment and how to build the, the Libya of tomorrow. The basic challenge is how to build a, a state that protects individual freedom, both political and economic, and create truly participatory democracy. Libya's Green Book argued that each individual must have control of his or her economic needs in order to be free. But misguided implementations in Libya led to the state so socialism and failure to realize individual freedom. We needed a liberal approach that supported both individual freedom and choice and a free market economy. But it must also be social in that the state plays a role too. Create opportunities for individuals to succeed. Ensure basic social welfare to protect the most vulnerable. And regulate, regu regulate the market to protect society from the huge cost of financial crisis that have repeatedly shaken the Western world. Most recently, the 2008 global economic crisis caused by unregulated financial elites. I began to think that the right reconciliation of this tension might be captured by the term social liberalism. I read the works of the new liberals in industrializing England in the late 19th century. They were unhappy with unregulated brutal capitalism, but also wary of the cost of dogmatic socialist solution to individual freedom. This literature had largely been forgotten as a source of ideas for those critical of neoliberal economics. Yet, we were fully aware of the dangers of state socialism. Social liberalism supports the key principles that the state must create favorable and, and favorable social and economic circumstances for individuals to succeed in life yet not at the cost of their freedom and choice. In our social and economic policy, I have supported social liberal measures based on the capability approach of Amata Sen, which focuses on increasing the freedom as individuals to pursue their own values and ensure the opportunity to participate in society and political life. We have um, implemented this 
through an asset-based social welfare policy based on the principle that issues of social inequality should be addressed through empowerment of citizens with skills, capital, and opportunities. I have advocated a series of specific measures designed to move from a social state to a social liberal state and from a rentier state to a capability-building state. This is based on series of public to private, P2P measures that transfer wealth from the state to private hands in order to empower individuals, but not at the expense of others. First, I supported the creation of the Libyan Economic and Social Development Fund, the ESDF, which undertook a one-time poverty alleviation measure to create a more just initial distribution of wealth. This has uh, already distributed assets in state enterprises to 188,000 of the poorest families in Libya by transferring over $10 billion in assets, all AAA shares in 130 of Libya's best state enterprises. Those assisted by the ESDF initially received assets worth $25,000 to $40,000 depending upon the size of their family. Those assets listed in our domestic stock market have already increased in average of 44%. These families receive regular dividends from their assets they can use the assets as collateral to gain capital to start their own business or get a mortgage for the first home. <coughs> the guiding principle again is P2P, to transfer pu public wealth to private hands in a way that builds capabilities. The fund itself, itself is just a temporary vehicle to transfer incrementally state wealth to the people and the fund itself will vanish when all assets have been transferred. By the beginning of next year, all families can decide to sell assets or manage them in the financial market as they wish. As a further measure to create, to create a just initial distribution of wealth, at the outset of our reforms, we are working to rectify past injustice. By another P2P transfer, we are transferring billions of dollars in cash and assets to compensate those Libyans whose property was confiscated by the state in the 80s. Another capability building approach has been the establishment of family saving accounts for all Libyan citizens. That state transfer public wealth to private by matching dollar for dollar, all saving by our citizens. These civil accounts cannot be used for immediate consumption, but only for, the, for certain uses, such as education, health insurance, mortgage, or other specific purposes that increases their capability to succeed. We have also supported specific policies 
to ensure that a certain minimum guarantee of basic welfare is offered to those in need. For example, the unemployed, disabled, or single mothers. To build further individual capability through education, we have a program to provide vouchers directly to citizens for primary and secondary school. This maximizes individual choice and minimizes the role of the state in public services. So we are working to empower people, but not at the expense of others. I have not supported progressive taxation or any other measures to turn private wealth back to state ownership. This year, we adopted a new law establishing a very low flat tax as a way to support individuals to be productive. Personal income tax and the rate of, for small businesses will be dropped from a previous high of 44% to a flat rate of 15%. We have reduced corporate tax from the previous high rate of 44% to 20%. Tariffs are set across the board at 4%. I ad advocate these policies to build individual capabilities among all our citizens. But we will not succeed unless we change the structure of our, of our oil-dominated economy to a diversified, healthy, and competitive one. This will create a proper structural basis for genuine participatory democracy and for genuine entrepreneurship. The oil and gas sector still accounts for over 70% of our GDP. Libya has the largest proven oil reserve in Africa, and we expect soon to be in the top 10 oil exporters in the, in the world. We seek to achieve maximum efficiency in the oil and gas sector, but simultaneously to diversify the economy by building long-term competitiveness in new sectors beginning with tourism. to develop an income stream independent of fluctuations in oil price, we have transferred $65 billion of our oil profits to our sovereign wealth fund, the Libyan Investment Authority. It is taking advantage of opportunities to invest after the 2008 financial collapse, specifically in companies on the condition that they outsource, outsource some of their business by setting up, setting up joint ventures in Libya and transferring technology. For example, we are working to develop a cluster in the pharmaceutical industry. And a few weeks ago, we opened our first helicopter assembly plant in Libya, a joint venture with Italians. To provide attractive conditions for joint ventures, particularly with the European Union, we are creating special industrial zones next to our harbors and airports with special tax regimes, low labor cost, and abundant supply of natural gas and power. Further, we have created 20 billion 
dollars fund to stimulate local investment in industry, tourism, and real estate in order to create jobs and diversify the productive basis of our economy and broaden the non-oil tax base. Most will be uh, joint ventures with local and foreign companies, and upon completion, the public shares will be sold or listed on the domestic stock market. Again, the principle is to transfer public wealth to private individuals to create opportunities for our people. In general, we are striving in our economic development strategy to look beyond the standard for formula of Washington consensus of the past decade. While there may be one economics, there are many recipes for economic development. Economic growth policies must be tailored to each country. It is not just a matter of liberalize that or privatize that. The standard Washington consensus approach never emphasized that you must target the most important constraints, <coughs> constraints blocking economic growth in each specific country. Rather than immediate and unregulated privatization of all state-owned enterprises, as happened in Russia, we are first working to restructure our enterprises, working to put in place competent management, tasking them with realizing competitive business plans. Then we proceeded to transfer public to private according to our Libyan model of privatization. We do this by giving shares to company employees. We turn cadres of the state employees into shareholders in our most profitable companies like steel and cash cows of telecom and public utilities. So they get, they get income from the market, not the state payroll. The challenge for us was to find those areas where reform will yield the biggest impact. We began immediately to work to increase access to capital for entrepreneurs. This is one of the most binding constraints to successful economic development because it limits the growth of small and medium enterprises, SMEs. Our Economic Development Board has worked to incubate new SMEs, opening a record, seven incubators in one year. It was hailed as the best SME program in Arab countries in a study at the University of Bahrain. With about 8,000 visitors in its first year, the program has approved almost 500 business plans with a total initial capital of $400 million. We also took immediate actions, immediate action to reduce the, the limit it takes to register a business in Libya from up to two months to just a few hours. To, facil to facilitate business and tourist development, I have advocated that we abolish our cumbersome visa regime. And sending tens of thousands of students abroad for study was another priority for our economic development. 
higher than some IMF directives like lifting all price subsidies. We are pursuing joint degree programs with many universities around the world, have a program to develop an academic syllabus with Singapore, and I am pleased to note we have established a research and training collaboration here at the LSE. These are the most interesting initiatives of our economic and social reform, which have occurred over the five past years. With regard to the political reform, in an effort to be noble and efficient, I have put forward a model aimed at achieving a truly participatory democracy by combining three types of democracy, deliberative, direct, and representative. The core of the model is based on an upgraded version of our direct town meeting style basic people's conferences together with the national level first legislative chamber, the General People's Congress, but I have endorsed extensive new mechanisms to support this core of direct democracy through free deliberation by the people. In Libya, the authorities banned public deliberations outside the BPCs because it was seen as creating rival power centers to popular democracy. We are now working to conduct deliberative polls in a program with the university, Stanford University Center for Deliberative Democracy. The deliberative poll is a modern version of an ancient innovation devised in the first democracy in Athens, where small bodies deliberated on major issues before the vote of the larger assembly. We have also already conducted successful pilot projects to test a system of online deliberation, a form of Athens online. We used new software and modern information and communications technology to inform citizens of draft laws, enabling them to, to enter specific comments in the margin of the documents while viewing them on the screen and allowing them to create agendas, agendas for policy discussion at local, local town meeting style councils. <coughs> this ICT enabled system is designed to allow all Libyan citizens to deliberate on key policy issues efficient, <coughs> efficiently and easily. This direct and deliberative democracy then needs to be supported by certain representative institutions for elite deliberation, like legislative committees. But I believe in the modern world where all citizens and democracies play roles as voters. Participants in the market and in civic organizations, Libya also needs to embrace the idea of an upper chamber similar to the House of Lords or the U.S. Senate, but with civil society and private sector representatives, as well as social leaders elected from throughout the country as voting members. 
This provides a way to articulate and aggregate social interest that is usually performed by national level political parties. This approach shares many of the aims of the current of the current Dutch Social and Economic Council, but goes further by giving them a formal vote rather than just an advisory role. This three-part model of democracy, civil society, private sector, and social leaders must be based on the rule of law. We must have a constitution that is the backbone of our democracy. We need stable laws and stable institutions to develop our economy and provide opportunities for all Libyans to succeed and enjoy a high standard of living. The rule of law must cover all parts of the state, including civilian control of the army. <coughs> we need governance based on merit and objective legal process rather than loyalty to a person or tribe or p political ideology. <coughs> Finally, there are two fundamental factors for success, which are modern infrastructure and national reconciliation. We are spending almost $200 billion on housing and infrastructure, making Libya one of the <coughs> biggest workshop in the world. <clears throat> and our national reconciliation process reached its peak last, last month. Last month, when the state released hundreds of ex-terrorists and even the leaders of the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group. This had been preceded by many steps. The return of hundreds of Libyans back home from exile, the compensation and return of confiscated assets to those treated unjustly by the state, compensation for all victims of a human rights violation, and lastly, the release of the last political prisoner in Libya. Torture and arbitrary arrest have now become history in our country. I am now very proud of our human rights record and national reconciliation. It is not a dream anymore. So, in conclusion, ladies and gentlemen, the, challenge, the, the challenges facing us are indeed daunting, but we are moving in the right direction. We have a long way to go, but I hope that I have been able to give you a brief insight into the changes that have been made and the path along which Libya is traveling. It has been a privilege talking to you, and thank you for your attention. Thank you.
must have bought your supporters here safe. <laughs> a very enthusiastic, uh, a very enthusiastic uh, reception. Well, I was, I was delighted to listen to you and impressed by a great deal of what you said. I mean, you have clearly thought very carefully about the traditions of thinking which you have engaged with, not just in Libya and the Middle East, but in universities in, in Europe as well. And I think you've come up with an impressive and wide-ranging synthesis of views which constitute a basis of considerable reform in your country. And I think it is impressive that you have said these things here and with the clarity and distinction that you have. Now, of course, this is the London School of Economics where everyone is a free target and we welcome questions. And I uh, propose to take questions in clusters of three and say if you've got a pen and paper there, you want to take notes. And after clusters of three, we'll give you the opportunity to respond. Now, I would like questions to be exactly that form. Questions, not statements. Question is something that in principle you can answer with a yes or a no. So we'll allow short questions but not statements. So we can get as many views as possible out on the table. So there's time for several clusters of questions and I myself want to ask Safe quite a tough question at some point. So let's just yeah, start the gentleman at the back. And uh, we have a roaming mic that's going to come to you. If you could just say who you are and then your question, and that would be good. I don't know where the lights have gone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Say, for the uh, presentation. My name is Ala Tertier. I'm a PhD student here at LSE. In fact, my question, um, uh, my question, will you keep the Green Book? And uh, in specific, what will be your main highlights to solve the Arab-Israeli conflict? Uh, okay, that's two questions. Uh, no, no, this is one question. That's two <laughs> questions. What about the Green Book? And that's question one. And what is about the deep-rooted conflict of Israel-Palestine? Yes, gentleman over on the right. Ahmed Shaybani, an official spokesperson to Al Jamar Media Center, Tripoli. Um, if I could borrow the words of a local businessman in Libya, um, where he, he feels he's going through a honeymoon, and I specifically tackled him on the question of succession. Um, since he feels that the uh, successful model of Syria and the brutal, nasty results in Iraq, he, ref he replied saying that I would rather see uh, the Gaddafi dynasty rule us not for 40 years, but for 400 years, and not to give a chance to Uncle Sam to come and torture us. Um, so from there, I would like to see why you cannot get from grassroots level the courage to announce your position as the crown prince, because many people in Libya, they see you the rising All sun. All right, we've got that question. <laughs> of course, there's an issue uh, of legacy and there's an issue of succession. And if you're talking the program of the rule of law and constitutional reform, there's a slight paradox in the succession <laughs> where constitutionality and the rule of law are questioned. But many paradoxes have resolutions, and one, of course, is a test of popular legitimacy linked to a reform program, and we can come on to that. That's three questions plus a statement, which I shouldn't have made. <laughs> I was just tempted to. Safe, do you want to pick up some of these issues? One more question. Take one more question, okay. I'm looking for, uh, we've had, yes, the woman in the front, we'll come back to you or not. Please. Uh, 
Hello, Jennifer Quinn from the Associated Press. I was hoping you could give us an update of the condition of Mr. Abdel Basset Al Magrahi and uh, talk a little bit about the impact that that has had on your country. Excuse me, the first part. Oh, I wanted to know about the condition of Mr. Abdel Basset Al Magrahi, please. And the impact of his return to your country and the issues around it. Okay, that's four issues. Let's start with those. Safe, you've got a few minutes, just a few, okay. and then I want to come back to the audience. Okay. I mean, first of all, about, um, about um, the Green Book, uh, as I mentioned before, there was a big and a huge mm -hmm. Thank you. misinterpretation of many uh, statements in the Green Book. Uh, so it was a... We, uh, manipulated uh, many uh, statements, we uh, played with words, so it was a very bad uh, translation of the Green Book. And the Green Book, as any other uh, book, is subject to any criticism or, you know, people are, they like it or not, with or against. So the, the Green Book is not the Bible or, the, or uh, the Holy Quran. So it's, it's a book, where we have a lot of uh, okay. yeah, it's all, it's all. many thoughts and ideas. You may accept them or not. But this is this this one this one part. But the other part that the, in, in the past we we got many problems in Libya because of the misinterpretation of the Green Book. Uh, about the Palestine it's not a secret anymore that I'm involved with, you know, the, with the Palestinians, both uh, sides, the Hamas and Fatah, in, uh, in, in order to, to reach a uh, uh, Palestinian uh, union and reconciliation, in order to be able to, to face the Israelis and to, you know, to negotiate for their rights and to... Uh, but which is an, uh, another tragedy in the Middle East, that now the Palestinians are fighting each other. And now it's, it's our concern is not how to build a Palestinian state or to solve the issue of the refugees or to, uh, uh, you know, to, to fight with Israel. Or, no, but now, uh, I mean, the, the, the biggest battle and the biggest effort now is, is how to convince the Palestinians to sit together and and try to find, uh, to create um, one government and to uh, join their efforts and be just one, uh, one group, which is very difficult. So, I mean, it is very difficult, not with Israel, but with the Palestinians themselves. Yeah, so it's an irony and it's a, it's a, and it's, it's a historical mistake for them to fight each other. So it's good for Israel, it's a big headache for me, and for many uh, others in, in, the, in the region. But I think we have to wait a long time until we see a Palestinian I mean, national reconciliation and uh, uh, a united government in Palestine, let alone the Palestinian state. Uh, the question of the crown prince. Okay, I like this idea very much, but... <laughs> But, and I'm very serious with that. Of course, it's a nice idea. The monarchy is like here in the UK, it's nice. <laughs> but, 
there is there is one 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 point that if we want to turn Libya into monarchy and we uh, my father should be a king and uh, have to be the, the crown prince and my family is the ruling family so we uh, are going first of all we're going backward to the monarchy time second it means the revolution against the monarchy was a mistake because you are replacing one family with another family the third I, d I don't think that I'm uh, the right person to be you know the, the crown prince anyway and to the country fourth uh, I think uh, the best uh, system for Libya is democracy and not monarchy because uh, um, you have to be subject to uh, you have to be accountable and if you uh, if you own the country and you own the people you won't be accountable to anybody so you are above the law above the constitution you are not constrained you are not uh, ruled by any institution or law so you are you'll be a supreme leader and in Libya we don't want any more I mean Libya is not in need of an, uh, a, a monarchy or a king. Uh, I think that the future is for good managers, good managers elected or chosen by the people to manage the country as a company. That's it. We'll take more questions. Uh, you, uh, sorry. One more question. Yeah. Uh, my favorite good. question about uh, Mr. Abbasat. Okay, anyway. Um, um, Mr. Al-Magrahi is, uh, is very sick and he has a serious uh, uh, health troubles. He has a cancer in a very advanced stage and he is in Libya. Uh, that's all what I know about his condition. I'm not a doctor, so I don't know exactly, or even I cannot give you the right medical uh, answer to your question. But two facts. Number one, he's in Libya. Number two, he's very sick. Well, I think that's, you know, that's, those are two facts. It's true. All right. Uh, yes, lady at the front. Nouria bin Hameda. I'm a Libyan student at the LSE studying government economics. Um, I found that in Libya, um, most youth want to go abroad. Um, and as a result, it's losing its most talented young people. Um, how will you encourage the brightest to stay and invest in the country, um, avoiding a brain drain? Yeah, good question. Yes, cheers, gentleman with his hand up here on the front, just over here. Yes, uh, this is Camille Tawil of Al Hayat newspaper. I've noticed that you, you haven't mentioned Colonel Gaddafi once in your speech. Can you tell us what you think, what Colonel Gaddafi thinks of your reforms? And uh, as a follow up, uh, it, it was said last year that you, were, you would be given a, a, an official post in the government to execute your reforms. What happened to that post? Thank you. Yeah, well, he did talk about the leadership, which I took to be a reference to his father. Yeah, the gentleman at the, uh, at the back, with the, yes, with his hands up on the end. We'll have several rounds, so don't worry at this stage. So you're excluded. Thank you. Um, do you think you can uh, implement a democracy without um, a bureaucracy, which is also democratically um, thinking and um, acting also? And there was a woman just next to you with her hand up. Um, someone at the back? Yes, why don't you take a question? I had a question. Um, if you if allow me to recap your speech real quickly, one of the problems you talked about for Libya was its character as a renter state and the oil curse. 
at the same time, you also talked about the ESDF and other policies to, um, to give the Libyan people uh, more economic capabilities. How can such mechanisms, such mechanisms appear to be just other forms of rent payments? How will they enhance the social contract between the state and the citizens, which as of now is non-existent because of the lack of civil society and civil participation in okay. Libya's democracy? Thank you. Very succinct and strong questions. Safe, this is the London School of Economics. You didn't come here for an easy ride. So, uh, the floor. I can st start from the last question about the ESDF. Okay, again, I mean, if you are hungry and you are very poor and uh, you are homeless, uh, you will not be uh, able and have the, 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 the mood to listen to uh, lectures in uh, democracy and constitutions and uh, uh, civil society because you have uh, other things which are more important, uh, basic needs. So to empower the Libyan citizens is a very important step towards creating de democ democracy in Libya. Why? Because, as I said before, democracy is not a car. Uh, political parties are not uh, uh, fast food. Uh, so we cannot invent them over one night. We need to create the, the, the right infra political and social infrastructure for democracy. The democracy is like a building. It needs an, an, an infrastructure. So one uh, major element or major aspect of the, of the social and political infrastructure for democracy is how to standard the, living, the standard of living of the, of, of, the, of, the, of the Libyan citizens. Because if, they are, if, they, if you deprive them from their basic rights or their needs, uh, democracy for them is not a priority. So, so those funds or initiatives I call them P2P because they start as the public, but they end up private. So, so for example, the, the, the fund you mentioned, the ESDF, this fund will vanish next year, will disappear. And the, the, the shareholders will be 188,000 families. They can sell, they can keep their assets, they can get dividends, it's up, it's up to them. But you, you take the, the, the power and the wealth from the government and give it to the individuals. Uh, again, civil society and political parties. We don't, we don't have political parties now. We have tribes. We have tribes. I mean, now, if you have an election, you, you, will, you will find every tribe coming here with its own list, with their own candidates. Uh, because we, we banned political parties like for more than 50 years, so there is no culture, there is no, there is no right environment for political party to, to operate like here in UK or in Holland or in uh, France. So even for political parties and the free elections, you need to create the right environment and right infrastructure. Otherwise, we'll end up having 100 tribal parties in Libya. And in a state of political ideology or political ideas, you will have different tribal 
ideas and opinions. Uh, so we don't have uh, the right civil society now in Libya. There is no independent media. There is no, there is no, but we have to start now. We have to have a serious start in Libya. We should, uh, I mean, we, we should say stop to the uh, uh, slogan saying that civil society is against democracy. Because now in Libya we have many stupid titles like uh, independent media is uh, the bridge of uh, the Western imperialism to invade Libya. Civil society is the puppet of the CIA. The, you know, we have those slogans. We still have this mentality, this culture. You have to get rid of this and to start to introduce the right ideas and concepts in order to build the right environment and infrastructure for democracy in Libya. But we cannot invent democracy overnight. It is not a car or a plane. The, the bureaucracy, this one, uh, still, still, okay. The, um, brain drain, okay, yes, we have thousands of doctors. Uh, the government sent them here to, to UK to, to study, and they uh, did graduate, and they stayed here. They said, we don't want to go back. Yeah, of course, because there is no comparison between the salary they get here in London or Manchester and the salaries they get in Tripoli or Benghazi in Libya. So that's why, again, you have to empower the people. Standard, the, the standard of, increase the standard of living of the Libyans. It creates the right environment there for foreigners and Libyans to come and work in Libya. Because it's not about just about um, giving them uh, a good salary. Uh, people, they need uh, the right environment to, to live. They need good schools, restaurants, uh, theater, cinema, uh, security. So again, you need, we are working to create the, the, the environment. Uh, in order to stop the brain drain and to encourage even foreigners to come and work in Libya. But if you talked about today or yesterday or last week, yes, we're still suffering from this problem, brain drain. Uh, another question about the bureaucracy. Uh, yes, of course, without um, a system, without an, um, an, uh, a bureaucratic mechanism, without uh, bureaucracy, technocrats, you cannot implement your ideas and you cannot um, change the society. That's right. And I'm, I'm glad to tell you that the bureaucracy in Libya and the government are all of them pro-reforms and not against. And don't listen to rumors that we have, like in Iran, the old guards, the conservatives, the reformers. No. In Libya, we don't have this phenomenon. We have just one fact, that all Libyans all, all of them, they want to go forward, they want uh, to see a better uh, future, uh, they want to uh, modernize their infrastructure, modernize their economy, uh, to have um, peace, security, uh, they want to increase their standard of living, uh, they want to see millions of tourists ca coming to Libya, they want to travel uh, without visa, see people coming without visa to Libya, they want to have uh, better schools for their children, like any other people in the world. So in Libya, all of us, we, uh, 
we are pro-reforms, pro-going forward and not backward. The last question I got is about my father, that I didn't mention my father. I don't like this question. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Today we, we are talking about facts. I'm not here to, to tell you uh, nice, uh, rosy, uh, uh, romantic ideas about, about Libya and the future of Libya. In Libya we have facts. We are, we are Arabic, we are Islamic, we are part of the Middle East and North Africa, we are barbarians. Uh, barbarians because the barbarians are the domestic uh, the original peoples of North Africa. Anyway, and we are developing country. Uh, we are Arabic country, so we have many facts. And we, there is still one father of this nation. So, uh, Muammar Gaddafi is not just my father, he is the father of the whole nation. So, he is very important. We cannot do anything without his approval. You cannot do anything without... So, and... One second, and to, just to show you that he is also pro the reforms, and also he wants to see his country in a better shape. He is not stopping the uh, reforming process. He is not against reforms. He is not uh, blocking all those initiatives. And he's, he has been very supportive, uh, which is very crucial, because without his support and green light, nothing will happen. Saif, let me, let me ask you a question about that as your ex, one of your ex-teachers, Zouar. You know, we've had many conversations about this, and it comes back to the issues that were raised, and, I, and then I'll go back to the floor. You know, democracy of, of, of various kinds depends on a number of crucial conditions. It depends on the rule of law, as you've argued very clearly. It depends on certain civil, political, and social liberties and rights. In Libya now, there's clearly a growing um, effervescence, a flowering of individually based rights like freedom of expression, but not yet things like freedom of association, the capacity of individuals to mobilize together, to articulate in diverse civil society associations, contesting and countering views. And also, in any kind of democracy, you do need mechanisms to change your leadership. I mean, the art of democracies is you no longer have to chop off the heads of your leaders because there are ways of removing them. And that means there are of removing people who are in control of the army and so on and so forth. And I'm just wondering now, it's a theoretical question as much as a question about Libya. In your model of democracy that you set out today, I did not hear a clear answer to the question how, in your conception, leadership is transformed, that is, changed, through the democratic process. So I would just invite you, in a moment, not now, to say something more about that, because it seems to me critical and goes to the heart and soul of democratic theory as well as ordinary politics. Now, let's carry on. Yes, over there. Hi, I'm Laura Jack. I'm an MSc student here. Um, I have a question. Uh, a couple years ago, the New York Times named Libya as one of the places to go in 2008. Sorry, can you hear me? Again, please. Yes, a couple of years ago, the New York Times named Libya as one of the places to visit in 2008 because of some eco-resorts and other sort of tourist initiatives. I was wondering if you could tell us about the status of those since tourism is uh, sort of the cornerstone of your plan to diversify the economy. Thank you. 
Yes, and just down in front, just a little bit. This side, the other side. Um, uh, my name's Ewan McGahey. I'm from the Law Department, another PhD student. Um, uh, I've, I've got a very, very serious question, a very serious question. My very, very serious question is uh, I'm hoping to come to Libya during the summer and I'm, I'm going to need a place to crash, so... <laughs> um, since, since you talked about opening up uh, to Taurus, uh, um, uh, but, but we can talk about that later. My, no, we just my we serious... can't, actually. We just need your other question. <laughs> um, my serious question is... Uh, how do you see Libya's relationship with Europe? Uh, Europe has, in, in the past number of years, had a, a circle of friends policy, and, and Libya would fall into that. So uh, how would you see uh, Libya's relationship with the European Union in the next uh, decade? Okay, I'm going to take the question there. there the back. I, what we'll do now is we'll just take a cluster, and then you can get okay. five minutes, ten minutes to wrap up. Okay, yeah, please. Thank you. Uh, my name is Jamal Larby. I uh, work for TLG Capital, a private equity fund. Um, you mentioned the importance of transmigration of technology and transfer of technology, uh, referencing, for instance, a plant uh, for manufacturing helicopters with an Italian firm. Uh, the same can be said for JVs in oil and financial services in Libya. Uh, you also mentioned a pharma opportunity that you're looking at. I was wondering if you could expand on that. And what do you think that private foreign capital can do to help the SMEs and small businesses more so than the big businesses, uh, especially when Libya is known as a land of commerce and traders. Thank you. This gentleman here in the middle. Uh, yeah. Good evening. Steve Terry from Sheffield Hallam University. Over the last few years and starting from when you first came to the UK to do your higher education, the UK has benefited a lot from Libyan students coming mainly to do masters and PhD programs and you've very successfully trained up a very senior cohort of Libyans to be able to contribute to Libyan development and now I'm getting on to the question. Um, do you have plans within the Gaddafi Foundation to expand that training to develop middle management skills across Libya because that's one of the um, perhaps one of the obstacles at the moment for Western companies and universities operating in Libya. Thank you. Now the young woman at the back has got a hand right up. The very back, yes. No, you, 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 yes. You've been waiting for ages. I, I'm trying to get to as many of you as possible. Don't worry about the, drain, uh, the brain drain. I haven't met a single student at LSE that wants to go back to their own country. So it's not a Libya-specific problem. Uh, I just want to agree uh, it uh, should be greeted that um, Libya is making uh, steps towards democratization. It's not an easy process. But don't you think that it's rather a big jump from a one-man rule to a participatory uh, democracy, democracy, especially having in mind that uh, participatory processes can easily be manipulated by the leaders who manage them. Can we have the mic right at the front here, please? I've rarely seen so many questions. I'm doing my best. You know, I, I, there is in the end, I'm afraid, something arbitrary about the selection, except I try to get around the room and I try to ensure that as many women as men ask questions. That's about the rule. Liz Simons, Member of the House of Lords. Um, can you say something about the role of women in the growth of civil society in India? Okay, thank you. The woman behind you. Say, if you won't be expected to address all these at length. Okay. Uh, 
Hello, uh, Nadia Turki from uh, Al Arab newspaper. Um, I really appreciate uh, all your ambitious and positive projects. Uh, but um, I would like to ask you, we didn't mention anything about uh, Libya's uh, relation or this project's relation with the Arab world, and especially your neighbors, as I'm very interested. I'm Tunisian, and I would like to know the future relation, if there is any development. <coughs> Thank you. Okay, I, 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 it's important to get diverse views out, which is working very well, so, but I'm afraid the time is running on, so I'm going to take two more. The gentleman at the front, if you're brief, and then I'm going to randomly choose someone with a, else with a hand up. And then Saif will give you a few minutes to finish. Uh, Fouad Abdelrazak from the BBC. I'm fair. Uh, I just want to ask uh, Dr. Saif about the media scene uh, in Libya and to what extent is it helping your very ideal uh, vision, especially you started so many good uh, projects there with some very good uh, uh, TV and radio stations. Uh, what is the status quo now? I'm afraid that I'm sorry, this will have to be the last question. Good evening. Um, Zaid from uh, Magella and a student at LSE. Um, what role does uh, solar energy have in the diversification of uh, Libya's economy from the traditional hydrocarbon extraction related economy? Because I know there are plans, there's a big plan for a solar project. Solar. Solar, yeah. Okay, Saif, that is a, a large range of final questions. And uh, we should finish it at, at eight. So perhaps you would just spend a few mi <laughs> ten minutes. It's giving you ten minutes, Safe. You don't need longer than that. I have, huh? I have ten minutes. Yeah, go. Okay. Do you want to stand up or are you? I'm fine. Here. Tourism, yes. Again, because of the oil curse, uh, we did neglect this sector for a long time. Tourism, because we said, why tourists? We have uh, enough oil and gas. Plus, uh, we were very sus suspicious with uh, tourists because we think they are uh, American Asians <laughs> spying in Libya. So we... Uh, we, we, we give you a very hard time to get visa to visit Libya. And there is no alcohol in Libya. Anyway, uh, recently, just recently, I mean recently, Libya uh, made a decision to uh, tackle the issue of, you know, the visa, alcohol in the hotels, uh, building hotels, resorts, uh, start creating the, the, the infrastructure for tourism in Libya for the first time. And we are investing a lot and the government is ready to change a lot of, um, a lot of uh, regulations regarding uh, this issue. And uh, by the way, maybe, I'm, I'm not sure, I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, a decision maker, but maybe uh, Libya will, uh, as a first step, because um, the British government was very uh, generous and friendly with Libya regarding the visa regime, so uh, maybe in the, in the near future, uh, the uh, uh, um, British citizens can travel to Libya without visa. Uh, so uh, w Libya will start with the UK citizens, then the 
the rest of the European countries, North America, Japan and Australia, and so on. Uh, so, this is uh, the picture regarding uh, tourism in Libya. It was very difficult, now it's better, and in the future will be uh, something else. Libya and EU. Uh, I was talking with the, today about this, uh, about this subject before I came here, and I said, uh, my father talks a lot on the, uh, during the 70s and, and uh, 70s, 80s, 90s on, on the Arabic countries and uh, the so-called Arabic nation. But after 40 years, he discovered that it was just um, uh, it was a dream. It's, it's even impossible to unite the Arabs in one nation. It's very difficult to uh, convince Arabs. They are very stubborn, very difficult people. He moved to uh, Black Africa. And, and he concentrated a lot on Africa. He managed to create the African Union. My father working very hard to convince the African Union, African countries, to establish their own uh, the Union um, institutions like African Central Bank, African Army, African government, which is good so far. But for me, I said this uh, before and I will say it again. We, we cannot and we, have, we, we, we shouldn't neglect and um, uh, undermine the, the or underestimate the European and Mediterranean dimension because Libya is a Mediterranean country. So it's a fact, a geographical fact. And our uh, biggest uh, trade partners are the, you know, the Europeans, not the Africans, not the, the Arabs. And biggest uh, oil uh, clients for us are the Europeans. Uh, we send our people to study in Europe the tourists, we are building hotels for Europeans, not for Africans. This is fact. It's true. So, and we are uh, getting technology and know-how from Europe. So Europe and the Mediterranean is very important for us. In the past, it was in the past, and now and in the future. It has been for thousands of years, even during the Roman Empire. Libya was part of the Roman Empire. So the European dimension and the Mediterranean dimension is very vital for the future of Libya. And uh, hopefully soon we will sign uh, the partnership agreement with the European Union before the end of this year. This will go to be a, a very uh, historic uh, moment for Libya. Um, the, about the SMEs and uh, LIA, yes, Libya is encouraging uh, Libyans to create their small and medium-sized companies and encouraging also craftsmen and small and middle-sized companies from abroad to come and operate and function and do business in Libya. And we start with, for example, with the Italians. So you can eat a nice pizza and pasta in Libya. Um, uh, with the LIA, yes, the Libyan Investment Authority is, is ready and they should, of course, be ready to talk to anybody who wants to uh, do business in Libya. We invest in your country, in, comp in company. We can invest in your company, 
be shareholder in order to transfer technology and do business in Libya. This is part of the business of the LIA, part, not all. But of course, this uh, is a very important uh, function in the LIA. So for anybody who wants to do, do uh, transfer the technology or outsource the business in Libya and wants Libya to invest in his company, he is more than welcome. Um, about the direct democracy and uh, you know the Green Book and my father. By the way, the, the, the concept of uh, participatory democracy and direct democracy, it is the idea of my father, it's the Green Book. So we are not against each other, but the difference that and we want to do it in a more serious and efficient way. This is the difference. We have to be serious with that and very efficient. Otherwise, it will be looked by like. Uh, another question about uh, the governance in Libya. The, the best example I can present today. That's it. Okay, uh, the, the best example I, I, I can give you today that Libya soon we will start uh, structuring the whole local governance in Libya for the first time and training the local governance and the mayors, uh, which is a very step, step uh, forward, very important. So we, are, we, 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 we do train uh, middle, middle people or middle managers or small managers, if you want, not just the top people, the, the, the women and the civil society. Uh, just uh, last month, we were approached by uh, a group of uh, Libyan girls and they came to me and said, we want to create an NGO in Libya to empower the Libyan uh, woman. And I told them that the woman in Libya is too powerful. <laughs> uh, okay, because we have just one minute. Uh, Libya and its neighbors. Uh, very quick question and, and political, we don't trust each other. Um, the media in Libya, yeah, the, the government closed the, the, the shut down the the, the, ch the TV channel because of uh, I heard because of Egypt. Uh, the solar uh, energy, Libya now is building a very uh, big like like a solar power uh, plant in the middle of the. Of Libya in the in the, in the in the in the desert, and we are planning to, to do another two uh, power plants based on renewable energy and to sell the energy to Europe. Thank you. <laughs>